Hey everybody, welcome to our 10 questions show. This is a brand new series that we are starting specifically to try to give all of you the attention that you deserve. We get a lot of questions about Swedenborg stuff. We try to answer a few at the end of our regular programming. We try to do panel shows. We wanted to go in depth though and try to get some of these questions we haven't been getting a chance to put time and effort into and really dig around, research a bit and see what does Swedenborg say about this because there's a lot of material out there and we want to try to navigate it. I always find that you guys think of very interesting things to talk about, and so we want to talk about those things. So without further ado, this is some of us here at the Swedenborg Foundation doing our best to give you the answers we think are consistent with what Swedenborg wrote. Hope you get something useful out of it. So here's our first one now. Uh, one of these is from, from Pam. So is this the last church? And if so, what is next, according to Swedenborg? And similarly, Sharon asked, so is the most recent last judgment the last last judgment or will there be others? If the interior meaning has been revealed once again, as it was with the most ancient church, what else is there? And Connie asked, if churches have different dispensations and following shadow periods, can we not see another repeat of the last judgment as time and history repeats itself, this time pushing more into good, though? Swedenborg says that the last judgment that happened in 1757 was the last, last judgment. I have to confess, I'm not entirely clear how things wouldn't get messed up again, because they always in the past, they've had a tendency to get messed up. But he does assert that, no, this is it. And you can see that in some scriptures. There are scriptures uh, that there's going to be something established in the future the Bible talks about this, uh, that will never be torn down. There's Isaiah chapter 33. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet home, a tabernacle that will not be taken down. Not one of its stakes will ever be removed, nor will any of its cords be broken. And I take this to mean, as I believe Swedenborg does, that something will be established that will be permanent. You won't have to go through another last judgment. The tent won't have to be torn down again in the future. And similarly, also in the same book of Isaiah in chapter 9, the famous prophecy of unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and so on. Uh, shortly after that, in the next verse, it says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. Again, there's a, a feeling of permanence that, that something will be set up that will be permanent. And similarly, the Lord predicts in Matthew chapter 24, when he's in this world and he's looking forward to this cataclysm that will occur at a future time, he says, then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. So again, that suggests that this last, last judgment will be the last, last judgment, and we don't have to, to do that again. It's very exciting to me, to although the last judgment supplies some fascinating drama and so forth, uh, I like the idea that once this is done, there will be this endless increase of the increase of his government peace. There'll be no end, that good things will start happening. 
A few weeks ago, Curtis had uh, Howard Storm on the show, and he was talking about a vision he had about something like 200 years from now, that things were really good in the future. He said it wasn't the definite future, but that really was on the menu, that we could be in great shape, people telepathically in touch with each other. They know how to do healing. They know how to change the weather. And there's this kind of love in the world. Uh, so I'm, I'm drawn to that idea that we got this mess out of the way. Now it gets better and better after this. If God is love itself, then why does he want to be praised high and worshiped? So the first thing that comes to mind for me is that, um, Swedenborg describes the essence of love as loving someone outside of self, wanting to be conjoined with them, united with them, and wanting to make them happy or blessed from yourself. And that applies to God too. Divine love is the same thing. He wants to be in a partnership with us. He wants to have us happy and blessed. He is not an egomaniac, a megalomaniac that says, bow down and worship me. The point is, uh, the way that Swedenborg lines up the sort of four basic human loves is love of God, love for the neighbor, love for material things or worldliness, and love of self. So if we're stuck in the self-absorption and the, the give me, grab me, give me the stuff of this world, it is not a heavenly mindset that just gets us mired in hell. What gets us to heaven is looking up and out. So if we're looking to God, a higher power, if we're looking to serve our neighbor, that's where we get the heavenly mindset. We come into the heavenly state. So if God is love itself, wisdom itself, mercy itself, truth and goodness, those if we make those our priorities, that's like worshiping God. And that is what's going to bring us happiness and peace in life, as opposed to being hunkered down and focused on ourselves. So it's sort of for our own good that God wants us to worship him. It's because he knows that's how we'll be happiest. So Francis asks, so we're constantly being judged and if so, is it for our own good out of love? Well, um, Swedenborg says that everything we're not only doing and saying, but also thinking and feeling is being recorded, spiritually recorded, so to speak. Here's a quote from Heaven and Hell 461. When we move from one life into the other, we retain everything we have ever heard, seen, read, learned, or thought in the world from earliest infancy to the very end of life. And the spiritual world is an honest world where all those recordings, so to speak, can come to light, especially things that we would rather hide. So Swedenborg says that angels can read our whole lives from the palm of our hands or a word that we speak. But that doesn't mean that what we are doing moment by moment is being judged in real time. It's being captured but we're not being judged. The way Swedenborg puts it, for each of us, there's only one judgment, which comes in the spiritual world after we have died. This reminds me of a passage in Hebrews chapter nine. People are destined to die once and after that to be judged. So our judgment only comes after we've spent our life in this world. The beauty of this is that there's still time 
for those of us who are still here in this world, to affect the outcome of our own judgment. And a big factor that's taken into consideration in our judgment is how we look back on the things that we did in the past. So one thing is just what did you do? Another thing is how do you feel about it? You know, we've all done some crazy things. It's life is a wild experiment. And uh, but when you look back on it, do you feel like like if it was a bad a bad thing? Do you feel a secret delight like oh that was so fun? You know, like when I was young and free or something. Or do you feel regret about it? And and that becomes part of what is you know goes into the judgment is how you feel about it after the fact. And so even some pretty horrendous things can be completely forgiven or even some pretty minor things can be judged depending on how, you know, how we hold it, how sort of the way we unfold over time, the choices we make through the course of our lives. Swedenborg says, and the Bible certainly supports this, that every effort's made to get us the best possible outcome. Um, if we end up in hell, it's because we cast ourselves there. Um, it says in scripture, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So short story, the game isn't over until it's over. And so we're not judged at every moment. And yet every moment does contribute to our eventual judgment. Uh, but the whole thing is done with a lot of mercy. And yes, the judgment is definitely for our own good out of love. It honors our freedom and the choices of our hearts. It teaches us about the mystery of ourselves. And our judgment process is also of benefit to others so that they can see who we really are inside. And in the case of people who have ever cared about anyone or ever done anything good for anyone else, I think our judgment is actually a great moment. Did Emanuel Swedenborg talk about taking the Bible literally or more by symbolism? Swedenborg's very first book that he wrote and published, The Arcana Celestia, was taking the book of Genesis verse by verse and telling the inner meaning of it. He very much has the message that the word, the Bible, is a book about us. It's about our spiritual progress. It's also about the Lord's journey um, when Jesus was on earth. So it's very symbolic, or as Swedenborg's the word Swedenborg uses for it is correspondential. It's about correspondences. That's not to say that he doesn't um, value the literal sense of the word. He says it's essential, in fact, that it's like that the literal sense, the stories of the word are the containers for all the upper levels, all the higher and deeper meanings. And that if we didn't have the literal meaning of the word, we'd be sunk. There's also the historic parts of the word, and he does sometimes talk about the, the literal parts of the story in the, in the children of Israel or in the New Testament. You know, that is history, and he talks about those, those parts sometimes specifically. But that uh, even those have inner meanings. Swedenborg says that when the angels are reading the word, the details about people's people and places and names and things like that fall away. And what is really living is the spiritual relationship of goodness and truth in our hearts and our minds. That's what the word is about. But it needs the, the literal sense of the, of the stories to hold all of that inside it, is how 
Swedenborg describes it, that the literal sense is the basis, the container, and the support for all the higher levels. So we need both, but the inner sense of the word is what's really alive and what's really going to help us in our lives. Kledjervin asks, if God did not create the hells, then who created it? And um, I hope I do a better job answering that question than I did uh, pronouncing your name. Um, so, but first I would suggest watching our show, The Infinite in You. We really talk a lot about uh, sort of what the dynamic that's going on inside this question of if God did not create the hells, then who created it? God didn't create the hells, but he did create finite vessels that could receive his love and wisdom. Swedenborg makes this point in True Christianity 470. It is unreasonable to think that the infinite could create anything other than what is finite, and that human beings, because they are finite, are anything other than forms that the infinite is able to bring to life from the life he has within himself. Because God is infinite, he is life in itself. This life is not something he can create and then transfer into a human being. That would make the human being God. So we are finite vessels. And we're humans, so we're these unique finite vessels that are made in the image and likeness of God. That means we have freedom, or Swedenborg calls it our sense of autonomy. And this sense of autonomy is what actually gives us the ability to have love and wisdom from the Lord as if it were really ours. Um, in Secrets of Heaven 8497, he says, People and angels are mere vessels or forms designed to receive life and therefore to receive goodness and truth from the Lord. Genuine life comes from nowhere else. Since life comes from the Lord, the closest we can come to adopting it is seemingly as our own. The reason life seems to be ours is that the Lord in his divine love wants to give everything he has to us and to graft it onto us. He does graft it on too, so far as he can. This sense of self-life given by the Lord is called a heavenly autonomy. So this autonomy is what allows us to take in love and wisdom from God most deeply so that we can become images and likenesses of God. But technically, if you look at what we are apart from the life that we have from the Lord, which is really just a mental exercise because we, are, we never... There's never a time when we don't have that life flowing into us on some level. But if you were to pretend, okay, let's look at what we are apart from this life flowing in from the Lord. If the Lord is goodness itself, wisdom itself, life itself, that means left to ourselves, by definition, we are what is not good, not life, not wisdom, and not infinite. So there's nothing intrinsically wrong with being the way we are. Like, um, if you think of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they didn't, shame wasn't even on the scene until they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So us being not good, or what you would call evil, there's nothing actually wrong with that. It's just the way we have to be. It's the nature of our creation, being finite vessels. But with our freedom and autonomy, if we choose to turn away from the life that the Lord is flowing into us and reject that love, then hell is everything that happens when we do that. It's anything that happens when we turn away from goodness, which is life from God. So you might ask, is it worth the risk? Um, all this hell just for the hope of angels 
that people would choose to receive the life and wisdom that they can from the Lord in every respect. Um, and here's one last quote that I think gets at why it's worth it and why really God doesn't have an option because he is love itself. So in Divine Providence 324, and I love this attitude that Swedenborg has in this quote, um, what would the Lord have been doing with all this creating of a universe if he had not made images and likenesses of himself with whom he could share his divine nature? Otherwise, it would only have been making something so that it existed and did not exist, or so that it happened and did not happen, and doing this only so that he could simply watch its permutations from far away, watch its ceaseless changes like something happening on a stage. What divine purpose would there be in all these changes unless there were serving subjects who would accept something divine more intimately, who would see and sense it? Since divinity has inexhaustible splendor, would it simply keep it all to itself? Could it keep it all to itself? Love wants to share what it has with others, to give to others all that it can. What about divine love then, which is infinite? Could it first give and then take back? Would this not be giving something that was bound to perish, that was intrinsically nothing, since it would become nothing when it perished? There was no real is involved in that. Divinity, though, gives what truly is, or what does not cease to be. This is what is eternal. And this is the life that we all have in us as human beings who could choose to reject it if we want. And Swedenborg says in Divine Providence 46, we are because God is. And that's always going to be the case, but we've got, we have put in our hands the choice between life and death. Okay, this question is from Blender, and he says, What does Swedenborg think has gone wrong with the Trinity when someone tries to mass murder people? What do you suppose he would say? So, Blender, I would say that that, essentially we're looking at a case of the wrong thing in the wrong place. And I'm going to use like a really crude metaphor to describe it, but if we're talking about mass murder, I think we can talk a little bit about dog poop, which is what we're going to talk about right now. Um, you guys familiar with a Roomba? You know, this is a little robot that like goes around your carpet and it cleans your house. And it's this like really amazing system that can like pick up a lot of dog and cat hair and dirt just by itself. Um, I know somebody and there's plenty of people online this has happened to too. While they were gone, their dog um, went to the bathroom on their carpet. And then the Roomba came along, hit that, and just because of its programming, smeared it all over the entire rug. Right? So what you have there is a system that's designed to do good because of the placement, uh, the wrong thing in the wrong place is now just really making the situation much worse. Okay, so there's our setup. Um, what Swedenborg says about the personal trinity, because we're talking about what's gone wrong with the trinity, is essentially when somebody's getting to the point where they're committing horrific acts against other human beings, they have the wrong thing in the wrong place. Specifically, Swedenborg talks about uh, the, the ruling love that has dominion in someone. It's supposed to be a love for other people. I mean, that's supposed to be the deepest thing within you, which he calls a love for God. It's sort of the same thing. But the wrong thing can get in there, which is essentially a love for power or love of dominion, as he called it. Once that takes the position that love of other people is supposed to take, the whole system starts to work for destruction instead of for good. Because remember, we talked in the Trinity episode about our spirit, you know, we're supposed to act on our own initiative on behalf of our spirit uh, and then bring that action out into the world. But Swedenborg says in Divine Providence 306 that our mind or spirit is either a miniature heaven or a miniature hell. 
So if we have this love of power over other people or this love of evil in the top place, that actually flips our whole spirit upside down. And suddenly we're, we're, this whole system that was made, you know, the, the, the soul body actions made to spread good into the world is now just spreading all kinds of evil. And I, I have a drawing here, a uh, little kid drew it. I'm just kidding that I actually drew this drawing. So you can see that you have the body and actions, but on the spirit side, if we're right side up, if the right love is at the top, we have this little heaven that we're bringing into the world. But if we're flipped upside down, if the most important thing is ourself and our own power and the least important thing is other people, then we're like this hell that is being brought by the rest of the mechanism, the body and actions into the world, which I would compare to that Roomba in my stupid metaphor. So that, that it's, just, it's just, it's the system with something really bad in the wrong place. That's what goes wrong with the, with the personal trinity when you have people doing these kinds of terrible things. So two questions, uh, both signed Pam. I don't know if it's the same Pam, it might be. Uh, they're similar questions. The first one is this, then according to this, most of the world is going to hell. All people have some form of evil in them I wonder if Swedenborg talks about grace at all. And if he did, what interpretation of it did he get? And the second question is closely related, it seems. What does we are saved by grace mean, according to Swedenborg? I've watched the show for a while and I'm not clear about it. Well, I want to pick up the first part of that first question first. Uh, all people having some form of evil in them. Swedenborg differentiates between hereditary evil and what he calls actual or active evil. Hereditary evil, we all just inherit sort of tendencies from our parents and grandparents going back through the generations. Uh, Swedenborg says that we're not actually guilty of that evil. It's not our own. It was what somebody else did. We just inherited it. So even though that may be in there, um, it's not the same as the active thing that we actually made a choice to do. We did it, you know, our active evil is much more of an issue. Um, nevertheless, even our active evil is something that we can repent of. Uh, it says in Ezekiel chapter 18 that uh, if we start out bad, but we get good over time, then the bad is, it's almost like it's forgotten or it's, you know, it's not a big deal anymore. And Swedenborg is very big on this idea that evil flows into us from hell. So do we really have this evil in us or is it flowing into us? So, you know, what, what's the situation? Here's a quote from Heaven and Hell 302 in which he, Swedenborg says that if we really realized that evil is flowing into us, we might be able to sort of let go of it more and, and not kind of be so attached to it. If we believe the way things really are, that everything good comes from the Lord and everything evil from hell, then we would not take credit for the good within us or blame for the evil. Whenever we thought or did anything good, we would focus on the Lord. And any evil that flowed in, we would throw back into the hell it came from. But since we don't believe in any inflow from heaven or from hell, and therefore believe that everything we think and intend is in us and from us, we make the evil our own and defile the good with our feeling that we deserve it.
So from Swedenborg's standpoint, you know, not everyone is evil. Almost everyone has inherited evil, but that doesn't mean that they have this active or actual evil in quite the same way. And so it's not necessarily true that practically everybody goes to hell. Uh, there's, there's more people making it to heaven than um, you might think. The passage about being saved by grace that Pam is referring to is probably the one in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, taken by itself, this statement might make you think that good works have no role in our salvation. Yet the very next verse there says that we were created, quote unquote, for good works, that we should walk in them. So Ephesians is talking about being saved by grace and that not of our works, lest we should boast, you know, and you can see that, that it's not about being proud of yourself, like I did this by my own strength or something. But there are also scriptures like Matthew chapter 25 about the parable of the sheep and the goats that says that salvation, it pretty clearly says the salvation is on the basis of what we do for others, how we treat others. If we treat others well, we're actually treating God well, and we go into everlasting life. If we don't treat others well, we, we completely fail on that point. Even if we're not actively doing evil, we just fail to do good. Uh, then he talks about everlasting punishment and scary things at the end of that, that parable. And it doesn't mention grace and faith there in that passage particularly, but uh, you can still see grace and the fact that these people were just, the good people were so surprised that, what? Really? I did? <laughs> I did something good? You know, I, I, I didn't really, you know, I was just helping somebody out. I didn't realize it was better than, than I thought. So the way Swedenborg takes all this is that we definitely don't have the power to save ourselves. We can't just yank our bootstraps and pull ourselves up into heaven. You can't do heart surgery on yourself or brain surgery. And there's a similar thing in, in what the Lord is trying to do with our spirit. You can't do it to yourself. You can't save yourself. Uh, so it absolutely has to be God doing the saving. Only God has that power. And yet the way that it's all structured, he says that he stands at the door and knocks. He doesn't barge in and change us without our consent. And so there, we have to respond and so this is a point of confusion for some people, I think, because they think, hey, I'm, I'm saved by grace, so I don't really have to do anything. Well, no, he's just standing at the door until you go to the door and open it. And Revelation chapter 3 explains that the way you open the door is by repenting. Natalie asked, does Swedenborg write about other types of intelligent life in the universe like humans? I wonder if extraterrestrials would also be spirits just like us and exist with us in the afterlife. The answer is yes. Swedenborg met spirits and angels from other planets. He wrote that the human race is the seedbed of heaven, but that heaven is so immense it couldn't possibly be populated by humans only from one planet, and that the universe is full of humans. They might not look exactly like Earth humans, but they are humans nonetheless. Swedenborg wrote that God only creates things that are useful and the use of planets is to support life and specifically human life. He asserted that where there is a world, there must be human beings and that it just doesn't make sense to think otherwise because why would a planet be there if it wasn't there 
to support the life of human beings. And that is quite a challenging assertion for readers of Swedenborg on Earth when we are not seeing human life on other planets, especially because he specifically talked uh, at length about interacting with spirits from planets in our solar system. So readers of Swedenborg have had various theories about this. Uh, theory number one, that his descriptions are meant to be understood symbolically, not literally. Theory two, that he was mistaken about what planets the spirits were from. Three, uh, that humans might have lived on those planets long ago, but not now. Theory four, that life exists on those planets now, but it's in a different dimension or in a different frequency. And theory five, that life exists on these planets now, but we're not being told about it. So pick a theory or make up your own, uh, but get back to that later because right now I'm going to ask you to suspend disbelief as I continue and just tell you what he said about spirits who had come from other planets. An interesting aside is that Swedenborg only listed plant, the planets in our solar system as being the first six, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Saturn, and Jupiter, along with their moons. And um, the, those planets had been known to exist uh, since, you know, since prehistory, for thousands of years. And it was in 1781 that the planet Uranus was discovered or identified as a planet. And that was just a few years after Swedenborg died in 1772. And so it's interesting that it seems like uh, the Lord needed to use the knowledge that Swedenborg had in his earthly mind in order to then lead him into all the expansive spiritual knowledge that was connected with that earthly knowledge. So, but perhaps Swedenborg couldn't be led into deeper knowledge about something he had absolutely no earthly knowledge about. So, um, so he doesn't mention Uranus or Neptune or the dwarf planets. Um, but he uh, seems to have, um, you know, believed in planets in other solar systems or circling different suns because he talked about five planets that he visited in spirit, um, in the starry heavens, as he said. And he, Swedenborg interacted with spirits of people who had come from planets. Uh, he, so he would be talking to the spirits. He would be given glimpses of the people on Earth to see what they're on, on, down on the planet to see what their life was like, their lifestyle, and what they looked like. But he didn't speak with them or interact with them. And he learned that spirits uh, from each planet stay near those planets to serve the people there because they are a similar mindset. Um, but anyone, uh, well, he, he said that spirits from different, different planets have trouble being near each other because they care about very different things. They have very different mindsets. And that's difficult to be near one another in the spiritual realm if you care about different things or think about the different things. But he, uh, Swedenborg learned from experience that anyone who is genuinely interested from a desire for truth, from a, from a higher desire like Swedenborg was, can be brought to interact with extraterrestrial spirits. Um, interesting that sometimes when Swedenborg was being brought by the Lord towards um, contact with an ET spirit, uh, earth spirits that were associated with him, had a little trouble approaching those 
uh, ET spirits because of the differing mindsets, and there could be a little tension on each side, which was interesting. Now, Swedenborg has a big concept called the grand human concept, which is, for instance, um, heaven is all the people in heaven are organized according to function and role and passion and, and purpose the way that the organs of the body are organized. So each community has a certain function that corresponds to some different part of a of a human body and they contribute to the whole in that way. And But there seems to be fractals of that grand human because Swedenborg is sometimes often talking about the grand human of heaven and it seems to be he's talking about um, the grand human of heaven um, of earth people from earth and there's people of the liver and the heart and the lungs and the skin and the pancreas and all that but there's another sense in which he talks about uh, what sounds like a more expansive grand human that includes people from other planets too and then Earth has a, a role within that. So that is what I'm going to show you with my very high-tech um, visual here in which I printed out a, a picture that Matthew had made for a previous show, the How to Understand the Trinity show, and then I glued pictures of planets onto it <clears throat> to indicate the roles that Swedenborg says each human race from different planets um, corresponds to so each each race each race from from specific planets corresponds to some part in this grand human the bigger more expansive grand human so if we look at that you'll see above the human head there is the planet Mercury and I put it there because Swedenborg says that people who have come from the planet Mercury correspond to the memory of abstract ideas in the grand human. So interesting, they don't correspond to a part of the body per se, but to a part of the mind. <clears throat> to the left of that, in front of the forehead, I put Jupiter, because Swedenborg says people from Jupiter correspond to the picturing power of thought in the grand human. Behind the head, I put Saturn, kind of between the body and the whiteness which represents the soul because Saturn, people from Saturn correspond to the sense that is midway between the spiritual and natural person. Now a little below that, still behind the person towards the soul, is Mars. I put it there because Swedenborg says people from Mars correspond to thinking based on affection. <clears throat> now look down to the left next to the hand. I've put Earth there near the fingertips because Swedenborg says that people from Earth correspond to bodily senses. Bodily senses. And near the other hand is Venus, which Swedenborg says those people correspond to the memory of material things, which is in agreement with non-material things. So interesting, those two. Um, Venus is the memory of material things, and Earth is... Uh, the sensation of material things or physical things. And that's extra interesting to me because Earth and Venus are often called sister planets because they are approximately the same size, the same mass, made of similar materials, and they're neighboring planets. Now, um, in the center of the chest there, I've written moon 
because Swedenborg says he talked to spirits of the moon, which I can only assume means the moon circling around Earth. So that really takes some suspension of disbelief, doesn't it? <laughs> Seems like a big empty rock to us. But he says they're spirits of the moon and that they correspond to the sternum, that bony cartilagey area there that connects the two halves of the rib cage. And then I put um, three of the <clears throat> um, out of, outside of our solar system planets that he mentions and what he says they correspond to. Planet number one there in the midsection he says corresponds to something in the spleen. People from planet number two, I put up in the head there in the brain near the eyes because Swedenborg says those people correspond to acuity of vision. And planet number three, I put a little behind the person uh, towards the soul because he says people from that planet correspond to the linking of natural and heavenly elements. So, that is showing why it could be hard for spirits from differing planets to, uh, to be near each other or interact in the lower parts of the spiritual realm, in the world of spirits or in the lower, lower heavens, as Swedenborg calls them, because there would be such uh, differing things they care about. For instance, there are some planets that just really don't want to think about material things. They're very repelled by that, whereas earth people and spirits are very much into material things. And so there's a real, um, you know, difference there, and that kind of keeps them apart and would keep them a little irritated with each other. However, Swedenborg learned that anybody in the afterlife who um, chooses to evolve, let the Lord evolve them to a heavenly level, um, that is getting past prejudices or worrying about outer differences or differences of opinion. It's a level of uh, valuing people for their, for their inner value um, and loving variety, not being put off by that. So people on that level in heaven uh, can quite easily interact with people from other planets because they are recognizing that it's all, it's all part of the same project. And so, if, if we would like to interact in the afterlife with people from other planets, it seems the thing to do is do our work while here on Earth to resist harmful thoughts, feelings, and actions, <clears throat> and make efforts to live in ways that are, that are heavenly and loving. And um, then, in the afterlife, we can enjoy lots of contact and hanging out with people from all over the universe. And I will end with just reading something out of Swedenborg's um, Spiritual Experiences. This is volume two, uh, lots of sticky notes in here. But he, um, he knew this was going to be a hard thing for people to swallow. So in 1532, the people of this earth, planet earth, will judge these matters in a variety of ways. For they judge from outer sensation the assertions both that these planets exist and that they are as described, or specifically that a person, himself, was enabled to speak with their inhabitants, and each will judge from his or her own imagination and love. But it makes no difference, because these things were seen and heard as tangibly as things in human society, so I do not wait upon their judgment. I am convinced that when they become spirits, and even more angels, 
they will ascertain the truth. They, and probably even some of the human race on earth, if it so please the Lord. This question is from Jen, and she says, When I seek counsel for something to see if it's wrong or a right thing to do, how do I know whose voice is guiding, good or bad influences? It's a great question, and I want to put a couple of qualifiers on it, because I don't know if you're talking in this particular instance about you know, we all talk about sort of seeking inner counsel and our inner voices, even if they're not actually voices, it's just our thoughts and our feelings. If you're going to that, or if you're actually, like, I can hear this influence, some kind of spiritual influence, and I don't know if they're good or bad. I'm going to lay out a couple of things that Swedenborg says, then I'll just go a little bit from my own experience um, from a Swedenborgian perspective. But first of all, um, Swedenborg says that good is not interested in obviously doing evil, but also in judging evil, really. He talks about angels and evil spirits, and you would think that evil spirits would kind of like let evil, like if, if they notice somebody's doing something evil, they'd be like, great, keep doing it. And angels would be like, that's, that's really wrong. We're going to condemn you for it. He says it's actually the reverse, that evil spirits, the delight of their life, he says, is to condemn people for doing evil things, try to get people to do evil things, then call them evil for it. And angels, he says, actually, when they notice something evil in somebody, he says they they hardly even notice it or they put a good interpretation on it. It's not that they're just going to allow anything to happen, but they're not interested in nitpicking and criticizing and, and making you feel bad, which, so if you're hearing some kind of counsel in your mind and it's going after you, uh, to try to make you feel bad about something, I read that Swedenborg is saying, that's probably not heaven. Um, the final thing I want to add from Swedenborg is, he seems to indicate that the, the good side, the angels, the heaven side, is not interested in telling you exactly what to do, or, or commanding you to take certain actions. He says that angelic influences will encourage you, but they're not going to give you doctrine about life, they're not going to command you to do things. So, Based on that, it would seem to me that if, if you're seeking counsel and you are getting some kind of spiritual influence that's telling you, go here, do this, um, this is, I, I would be a little bit cautious about that um, within the Swedenborgian worldview. But if we're just talking about, you know, seeking counsel in like, you're going into some kind of prayer or you're just asking or thinking, what's the right thing to do? What's the right thing to do? That's really tough to figure out. And I feel like I've tried to spend my life figuring that out. For Swedenborg, this ability to perceive what was com- coming into him, whether that was good or whether it was bad, or whether it was helpful or harmful, that was like his main life upgrade almost when he had his spiritual awakening was now he could tell when something was coming to him, what's the motive behind this? Is this really helping me? Do I really need to act on this? And that's something that, you know, we don't have, I don't have, but I would love to. And I've tried to figure out little ways of sorting it out. Essentially, you got to look at the purpose. Swedenborg says that the purpose behind things is what makes them what they are. So if I consider like thoughts and feelings, input that I'm getting, what's, what's it trying to do? You might not think of a thought or a feeling as trying to do something, but if you step back a little bit and study it, what's the goal? Like what is the outcome that that seems to be pushing for? Um, and is that something that in just a simple way, does it make you feel better or worse? Uh, some people will say, you know, sometimes good things make you feel worse because they're pointing out something about you that needs to change or something. I would say that's only true to an extent. In my experience, whenever I've had what I feel like is realizations that are self-correcting, um, the ones that, that are genuine always come with, even though there is some, oh yeah, I, I need to make amends to this or I need to be better. There is this element of hope in it. 
or, or of some kind of optimism. It's not a totally negative experience. That's just my experience that there's some, oh, I'm excited about getting this done and getting better like this. Whereas on the other side, there are things that just leave you hopeless. There's no, they're not leading you to constructive action. They're just asking you to feel bad about something. To me, that's an indicator that it's from hell. And the more that I read Swedenborg and learn about hell, go, go read Swedenborg or, or read whoever you really think is in touch with heaven and hell, learn about how they each work. And I feel like the more of that I load into my mind, the more that I can try to get a sense of where's this stuff coming from. And I don't think we're ever, well, not ever, but it's no guarantee that we're going to in any situation be able to discern something individually. But if you just have these general principles that you live by, this is how I know like God is, this is what I know love is, is this thing, and you can make an estimated, a good uh, educated guess, I mean, about is this heaven or hell. So those are a few of my thoughts. Uh, if you find out the answer to that, let me know, and I'd love to pick it up from you. Thanks. Is anger evil? And how do we combat anger issues? From Josh. So I feel like I have an intimate relationship with anger. Um, and I never used to think of myself as a very angry person until I had kids. And then that became a very uh, present issue for me. And so I'm happy to share some thoughts from my own experience as informed from Swedenborg on this issue. I would say anger in and of itself isn't evil. Um, it's a feeling. And anything of a feeling just has to do with love. And um, love, in Swedenborg says, corresponds to heat. So it's really like anger is just related to the temperature of love. Um, and so anger is a symptom. You can think of it as a symptom that's telling you something about yourself. And so there's nothing inherently wrong with the feeling of anger. It's a symptom. It's a temperature reading of yourself. A tidbit from Swedenborg about it is that love is what arranges the whole spiritual world. And so in heaven, you have heavenly love, and in hell, you have hellish love, or that's even depicted as hellfire. Um, and, and so anger, he talks about two different kinds of anger. You can have anger in a hellish way, or you can have anger in a heavenly way that he describes as zeal. And the difference, he says, is that like angels who feel zeal, it flares up like your temperature does when you're angry, but then it it um, dissipates as soon as the the irritant is dealt with or whatever the scenario is figured out. Whereas in hell, hellfire, that anger that exists there um, smolders. It loves revenge. It doesn't want to give it up. It just, you know, loves that feeling and wants to hold on to it. So if I have in any given day a flood of anger come up, I can gather information from it like you would if you're taking your temperature. So I might analyze it and say, it might be telling me that I'm tired or I'm hungry or that some boundary has been crossed and I need to think what boundary was crossed and how can I um, approach that and deal with it. You know, hell always is flowing into us too. And so anytime that I have anger come up, hell would love for me to just like ride that anger train and it gets a huge hit off of that. It would love to see me lash out, curse, throw things, you know, it's just loving that experience. Um, but if I can think to reflect and choose heaven, then it's just a matter of thanking the anger for what it's telling me about myself, respecting that it has, that it knows something about me. Um, and 
and then go from there. If I realize, oh, I'm really tired, I'll, maybe I can rearrange my afternoon to take a nap, or I need to eat something, or I need to think about this relationship where I feel like a boundary's been crossed, so I can respond to it in a, in a heavenly way that can support me and, and my relationships. Um, and as far as like actual combating that issue, um, or really just combating the influence of hell that would want us to act out in a hellish way on anger. Um, it's just been a matter of amassing as many tricks as I can to get me to stop and reflect before I let the feeling of anger go right out into action and sort of have its way with me. So there's lots of tricks that you can use to stop and think before letting the anger come out in action. And uh, just one of them is to focus on the feeling of it and ask, ask yourself, where am I feeling this in my body? And just put all your concentration on what is this feeling like in my body? So it's not about needing to act on it, but even just like sit down and take notes is something you're doing something else than doing the thing that hell would want you to do with that feeling of anger. All right, so yeah, maybe that wasn't exactly 10, but we could throw some bonus ones in there if we want. Thanks so much, everybody, for the questions, for caring. Uh, if you care about getting this question show out onto YouTube, please like and subscribe. That helps this spread out and just helps the channel in general. If you want to make programming like this and all the other shows we do possible, consider making a donation. We're a nonprofit. This is how we get things done. Here's a little bit more about our philosophy. We want the ideas and insights we cover to be available for free to anyone, anytime they need them. That's why we offer Swedenborg's books as free downloads on Swedenborg.com, and we produce this show and other content on our Off the Left Eye YouTube channel with no paywall or ads. The only way to keep this up, though, is for those of you who like what we're doing and feel comfortable giving to give. If the idea of helping others have easy access to the content we produce feels meaningful to you, please consider supporting this cause with a donation. Give if you can, receive if you need. If we cycle through this way, in the end, everybody wins. All right, that's our show for this week. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for asking the questions. Hope you feel like we did an okay job. We'll see you next week. Next Monday, we're going to be talking about animals in the afterlife. So if you dig it, show up. We'll hang out. We'll have a good time. Thanks, guys.